On the final day of my sophomore year of high school, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. As my classmate took a full swing, the bat slipped out of his hand and came flying towards me before striking me directly between the eyes. I have no memory of the moment of impact. The bat smashed into my face with such force that it crushed my nose into a disordered U-shape. The collision sent the soft tissue of my brain slamming into the inside of my skull. Immediately, a wave of swelling surged throughout my head. In a fraction of a second, I had a broken nose, multiple skull fractures and two shattered eye sockets. When I opened my eyes, I saw people staring at me and running over to help. I looked down and noticed spots of red on my clothes. One of my classmates took the shirt off his back and handed it to me. I used it to plug the stream of blood rushing from my broken nose. Shocked and confused, I was unaware of how seriously I had been injured. My teacher looped his arm around my shoulder and we began the long walk to the nurse's office, across the field, down the hill and back into the school. Random hands touched my sides, holding me upright. We took our time and walked slowly. Nobody realized that every minute mattered. When we arrived at the nurse's office, she asked me a series of questions. What year is it? 1998, I answered. It was actually 2002. Who's the President of the United States? Bill Clinton, I said. The correct answer was George W. Bush. What is your mom's name? Um, um, I stalled. Ten seconds passed. Patty, I casually said, ignoring the fact that it had taken me ten seconds to remember my own mother's name. That is the last question I remember. My body was unable to handle the rapid swelling in my brain and I lost consciousness before the ambulance arrived. Minutes later, I was carried out of the school and taken to the hospital. Shortly after arriving, my body began shutting down. I struggled with basic functions like swallowing and breathing. I had my first seizure of the day. Then I stopped breathing entirely. As the doctors hurried to supply me with oxygen, they also decided the local hospital was unequipped to handle the situation and ordered a helicopter to fly me to a larger hospital in Cincinnati. I was rolled out of the emergency room doors and towards the helipad across the street. The stretcher rattled on a bumpy sidewalk as one nurse pushed me along with another, pump each breath into me by hand. My mother, who had arrived at the hospital a few moments before, climbed into the helicopter beside me. I remained unconsciousness and unable to breathe on my own as she held my hand during the flight. While my mother rode with me in the helicopter, my father went home to check on my brothers and sisters and break the news to them. He choked back tears as he explained to my sister that he would miss her 8th grade graduation ceremony that night. After passing my sibling off to my family and friends, he drove to Cincinnati to meet my mother. When my mother and I landed on the roof of the hospital, a team of nearly 20 doctors and nurses sprinted onto the helipad and wheeled me into the trauma unit. By this time, the swelling in my brain had become so severe that I was having repeated post-traumatic seizures. My broken bones needed to be fixed, but I was in no condition to undergo surgery. After yet another seizure, my third of the day, I was put into medically induced coma and placed on a ventilator. 
My parents were no strangers to this hospital. Ten years earlier, they had entered the same building on the ground floor after my sister was diagnosed with leukemia at age three. I was five at the time. My brother was just six months old. After two and a half years of chemotherapy treatments, spinal taps and bone marrow biopsies, my little sister finally walked out of the hospital happy, healthy and cancer-free. And now, after 10 years of normal life, my parents found themselves back in the same place with a different child. When I slipped into a coma, the hospital sent a priest and a social worker to comfort my parents. It was the same priest who had met them a decade earlier on the evening they found out my sister had cancer. A day faded into the night. A series of missions kept me alive. My parents slept restlessly on a hospital mattress. One moment, they would collapse from fatigue, the next, they would be wide awake with worry. My mother would tell me later it was one of the worst nights I ever had. My Recovery Mercifully, by the next morning, my breathing had rebounded to the point where the doctors felt comfortable releasing me from the coma. When I finally regained consciousness, I discovered that I had lost my ability to smell. As a test, a nurse asked me to blow my nose and sniff an apple juice box. My sense of smell returned, but to everyone's surprise, the act of blowing my nose forced air through the fractures in my eye socket and pushed my left eye outward. My eyeball, bulged out of the socket, held precariously in place by my eyelid and the optic nerve attaching my eye to my brain. The ophthalmologist said my eye would gradually slide back into place as the air speed seeped out but it was hard to tell how long this would take. I was scheduled for a surgery one week later, which would allow me to some additional time to heal. I looked like I had been on wrong end of the boxing match, but I was clearly to leave the hospital. I returned home with a broken nose, half a dozen facial fractures and a bulging left eye. The following month were hard. It felt like everything in my life was on pause. I had double visions for weeks. I literally couldn't see straight. It took me more than a month, but my eyeballs did eventually return to its normal location. Between the seizures and my vision problem, it was 8 months before I could drive a car again. At physical therapy, I practiced basic motor patterns like walking in a straight line. I was determined not to let my injury get me down, but there were more than a few moments when I felt depressed and overwhelmed. I became painfully aware of how far I had to go when I returned to the baseball field one year later. Baseball had always been a major part of my life. My dad had played minor league baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals and I had dreamed of playing professionally too. After a month of rehabilitation, what I wanted more than anything was to get back to the field. But my return to baseball was not smooth. When the season rolled around, I was the only junior to be cut from the Veracity baseball team. I was sent down to play with the sophomore on junior varsity. I had been playing since age 4 and for someone who had spent so much time and effort on the sport, getting cut was humiliating. I vividly remember the day it happened. I sat in my car and cried as I flipped through the radio, desperately searching for a song that would make me feel better. After a year of self-doubt, I managed to make the varsity team as a senior, but I rarely made it on the field. In total, I played 11 innings of high school varsity baseball, barely more than a single game. 
Despite my lackluster high school career, I still believed I could become a great player and I knew that if things were going to improve, I was the one responsible for making it happen. The turning point came two years after my injury when I began college at Denison University. It was a new beginning and it was the place where I would discover the surprising power of small habits for the first time. How I learned about habits Attending Denison one of, one of, was one of the best decisions of my life. I earned a spot on baseball team and although I was a bottom of the roster as a freshman, I was thrilled. Despite the chaos of my high school years, I had managed to become a college athlete. I wasn't going to be starting on the baseball team anytime soon, so I was focusing on getting my life in order. While my peers stayed up late and played video games, I built good sleeping habits and went to bed early each night. In the messy world of college Tom, I made a point to keep my room neat and tidy. These improvements were minor, but they gave me a sense of control over my life. I started to feel confident again, and this growing belief in myself rippled into the classroom as I improved my steady habits and managed to earn straight A's during my first year. A habit is a routine or behavior that is performed regularly, and in many cases, automatically. As each semester passed, I accumulated small but consistent habits that ultimately led to the result that were unimaginable to me when I started. For example, for the first time in my life, I made it a habit to lift weights multiple times per week. And in the year that followed, my 6 foot 4 inch frame bulked up from a featherweight 170 to a lean 200 pounds. When my sophomore season arrived, I earned a startling role on the pitching staff. By my junior year, I was OTA team captain and at the end of the season, I was elected for the all-conference team. But it was not until my senior season that my sleep habits, steady habits and strength training habits really began to play off. Six years after I had been hit in the face with a baseball bat and flown to the hospital and placed into a coma, I was selected as the top male athlete at Denison University and named to the ESPN Academic All-American team and the honor given to just 33 players across the country. By the time I graduated, I was listed in the school record book in eight different categories. The same year, I was awarded the university's highest academic honor, the President's Medal. I hope you will forgive me if this sounds boastful. To be honest, there was nothing legendary or historic about my athletic performance. I never ended up playing professionally. However, Looking back on those years, I believe I accomplished something just as rare. I fulfilled my potential and I believe the concepts in this book can help you fulfill your potential as well. We all face challenges in life. This injury was one of mine and the experience taught me a crucial lesson. Changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you are willing to stick with them for years. We all deal with the setbacks. But in the long run, the quality of a life often depends on the quantity of our habits. With the same habits, you end up with the same results. But with better habits, anything is possible. Maybe there are people who can achieve incredible success overnight. I don't know any of them. And I'm certainly not one of them. There wasn't one defining moment on my journey from medically induced coma to academic all-American. 
There were many. It was a gradual evolution, a long series of small wins and tiny breakthroughs. The only way I made progress, the only choice I had was to start small and then employed the same strategy a few years later when I started my own business and began working on this book. How and why I wrote this book In November 2012, I began publishing articles at jamesclear.com. For years, I had been keeping notes about my personal experiments with habits and I, have, I was finally ready to share some of them publicly. I began by publishing a new article every Monday and Thursday. Within a few months, this simple writing habit led to my first 1,000 email subscribers and by the end of 2013, that number had grown to more than 30,000 people. In 2014, my email list expanded to over 100,000 subscribers which made it one of the fastest growing newsletters on the internet. I had felt like an imposter when I began writing two years earlier, but now I was becoming known as an expert on habits. a new label that excited me but also felt uncomfortable i had never considered myself a master of the topic but rather someone who was experimenting alongside my readers in 2015 i reached 200000 email subscribers and signed a book deal with penguin random house to begin writing the book you're reading now as my audience grew so did my business opportunities I was increasingly asked to speak at top companies about the science of habit formation, behavior change, and continuous improvement. I found myself delivering keynote speeches at conferences in the United States and Europe. In 2016, my articles began to appear regularly in major publications like Time, Entrepreneur, and Forbes. Incredibly, my writing was read by over 8 million people that year. Coaches in the NFL NBA and MLB began reading my work and sharing it with their teams. At the start of 2017, I launched the Habits Academy, which became the premier training platform for organizations and individuals interested in building better habits in life and work. Fortune 500 companies and growing startups began to enroll their leaders and train their staff. In total, over 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches and teachers have graduated from the habits academy and my work with them has taught me an incredible amount what it takes to make habits work in the real world as i put the finishing touches on this book in 2018 jamesclear.com is receiving millions of visitors per month and nearly 500000 people subscribe to my weekly email newsletter a number that is so far beyond my expectations when i began that i'm not even sure what to think of it The entrepreneur and investor Nawal Ravikant has said to write a great book you must first become the book. I originally learned about the ideas mentioned here because I had to live them. I had to reply rely on small habits to rebound from an injury, to get stronger in the gym and to perform at a higher level on the field to become a writer, to build a successful business and simply to develop into a responsible adult. Small habits help me fulfill my potential and since you picked up this book I'm guessing you'd like to fulfill yours as well. In the pages that follows I will share a step-by-step plan for building better habits not for days or weeks but for a lifetime. While science supports everything I've written this book is not an academic research paper it's an operating manual. 
you'll find wisdom and practical advice friend and center as i explain the signs of how to create and change your habits in a way that is easy to understand and apply the field i draw on biology neuroscience psychology physiology and more have been around for many years what i offer you is a synthesis of the best ideas smart people figured out a long time ago as well as the most compelling discoveries scientists have made recently my contribution i hope is to find the ideas that matter most and connect them in a way that is highly actionable anything wise in these pages you should credit to the many experts who precede me anything foolish assume it is my error the backbone of this book is my four step model of habits cue carving response and reward and the four laws of behavior change that evolve out of these steps readers with a psychology background may recognize some of these terms from operant conditioning which was first proposed as stimulus response reward by b f skinner in the 1930s and has been popularized most recently as cue routine and reward in the power of habits by charles duhigg behavioral scientists like skinner realized that If you offer the right reward or punishment you could get people to act in a certain way but while skinner's model did an excellent job of explaining how external stimuli influenced our habits it lacked a good explanation for how our thoughts feelings and beliefs impacted our behavior internal states our moods and emotions matter too in recent decades scientists have begun to determine the connection between our thoughts feelings and behaviors this research will also be covered in these pages in total the framework one offer is an integrated model of the cognitive and behavioral sciences i believe it is one of the first models of human behavior to accurately account for both the influence of external stimuli and internal emotions on our habits while some of the language may be familiar i'm confident that the details and the application of the four laws of behavioral change will offer a new way to think about your habits Human behavior is always changing situation to situation moment to moment second to second but this book is about what doesn't change it's about the fundamentals of human behavior the lasting principle you can rely on year after year the ideas you can build a business around build a family around build a life around there is no one right way to create better habits but this book describes the best way i know an approach that will be effective regardless of where you start or what you're trying to change the strategies i cover will be relevant to anyone looking for a step by step system for improvement whether your goals center on health money productivity relationship or all of the above as long as human behavior is involved this book will be your guide the fundamentals why tiny changes make a big difference chapter 1 the surprising power of atomic habits the fate of british cycling changed one day in 2003 the organization which was the governing body for professional cycling in great britain had recently hired dave prailsford as its new performance director at the time professional cyclists in great britain had endured nearly 100 years of mediocrity since 1908 british riders had won just a single gold medal at an olympic games and they've had fared even worse in cycling's biggest race the tour de france 
In 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. In fact, the performance of British riders have been so underwhelming that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they were afraid that it would hurt sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their gear. Brailsford had been hired to put British cycling on a new trajectory. What made him different from previous coaches was his relentless commitment to a strategy that he referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, which was the philosophy of searching for a tiny margin of improvement in everything you do. Brailsford said the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improving it by 1%, you will get a significant increase when you put them all together. Brailsford and his coaches began by making small adjustments you might expect from a professional cycling team. They redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable and rubbed alcohol on the tires for a better grip. They asked riders to wear electrically heated overshots to maintain ideal muscle temperature while riding and used biofeedback sensors to monitor how each athlete responded to a particular workout. The team tested various fabrics in a wind tunnel and had their outdoor riders switch to indoor racing suits, which proved to be lighter and more aerodynamic. But they didn't stop there. Brailsford and his team continued to find 1% improvements in overlooked and unexpected areas. They tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the fastest muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach each rider the best way to wash their hands to reduce the chances of catching a cold. They determined the type of pillow and mattresses that led to the best night's sleep for each rider. They even painted the inside of the team truck white which helped them spot little bits of dust that would normally slip by unnoticed but could degrade the performance of the finely tuned bikes. As these and hundreds of other small improvements accumulated, the results came faster than anyone could have imagined. Just five years after Bracewell took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track cycling events at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, where they won an astounding 60% of the gold medals available. Four years later, when the Olympic Games came to London, the Brits raised the bar as they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. That same year, Bradley Wiggins became the first English cyclist to win the Tour de France. The next year, his teammate Chris Froome won the race and he would go on to win again in 2015, 16 and 17, giving the British team five Tour de France victories in six years. During the 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 World Championships and 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals and captured five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful run in the cycling history. How did this happen? How does a team of previously ordinary athletes transform into world championship with tiny changes that at first glance would seem to make a modest difference at best? Why do small improvements accumulate into such remarkable results? And how can you replicate this approach in your own life? Why? Small habits make a big difference. It is easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. Too often, 
we convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action. Whether it is losing weight, building a business, writing a book, winning a championship or achieving any other goal, we put pressure on ourselves to make some earth-shattering improvements that everyone will talk about. Meanwhile, improving one person isn't practically notable. Sometimes it's even not noticeable. But it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long run. The difference a tiny improvement can make over a time is astounding. Here's how the maths work out. If you can get 1% better each day for one year, you'll end up 37 times better by the time you're done. Conversely, if you get 1% worse each day for one year, you'll decline nearly down to zero. What starts as a small win or a minor setback accumulates into something much more. 1% better every day. Let's take an example. 1% worse every day for one year, which when calculated, 0.99 to the power 365 equals 0.03. 1% better every day for one year, 1.01 to the power 365, the value is 37.78. Habits are compound interest of self-improvements. The same way the money multiplies through compound interest, the effect of your habits multiply as you repeat them. They seem to make little difference on any given day, and yet the impact they deliver over the months and years can be enormous. It is only when looking back 2, 5 or perhaps 10 years later that the value of the good habits and the cost of bad ones becomes strikingly apparent. This can be a difficult concept to appreciate in daily life. We often dismiss small changes because they don't seem to matter very much in the moment. If you save a little money now, you are still not a millionaire. If you go to gym 3 days in a row, you are still out of shape. If you study Mandarin for an hour tonight, you still haven't learned the language. We make a few changes, but the results never seem to come quickly, and so we slide back into our previous routines. Unfortunately, the slow pace of transformation also makes, makes it easy to let a bad habit slide. If you eat an unhealthy meal today, the scale doesn't move much. If you work late tonight and ignore your family, they will forgive you. If you procrastinate and put your project off until tomorrow, there will usually be a time to finish it later. A single decision is easy to dismiss. But when we repeat 1% errors day after day by replicating poor decisions, duplicating tiny mistakes and rationalizing little excuses, our small choice compounds into toxic results. It's the accumulation of many missteps, a 1% decline here and that that eventually leads to a problem. The impact created by a change in our habits is similar to the effect of shifting the route of an aeroplane by just a few degrees. Imagine you are flying from Los Angeles to New York City. If a pilot leaving from LAX adjusts the heading just 3.5 degrees south, you will land in Washington DC instead of New York. Such a small change is barely noticeable at takeoff, and the nose of the aeroplane just moves few feet, but when magnified across the entire United States, you end up hundreds of miles apart. Similarly, a slight change in your daily habits can guide your life to a very different destination. 
making a choice that is 1% better or 1% worse seems insignificant in the moment. But over the span of moments that make up a lifetime, these choices determine the difference between who you are and who you could be. Success is the product of daily habits, not once in a lifetime transformations. That said, it doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful you are right now. What matters is whether your habits are putting you on the right path towards success. You should be far more concerned with your current trajectory than with your current results. If you are a millionaire but you spend more than you earn each month, then you are on a bad trajectory. If your spending habits don't change, it's not going to end well. Conversely, if you are broke but you save a little bit every month, then you are on the path towards financial freedom even if you're moving slower than you'd like. Your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. Your clutter is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. You get what you repeat. If you want to predict where you will end up in your life, all you have to do is follow the curve of tiny gains or tiny losses and see how your daily choices will compound 10 or 20 years down the line. Are you spending less than you earn each month? Are you making it into the gym each week? Are you reading books and learning something new each day? Tiny battles like this are the ones that will define your future self. Time magnifies the margin between success and failure. It will multiply whenever you feed it. Good habits make time your ally. Bad habits make time your enemy. Habits are double-edged sword. Bad habits can cut you down just as easy as good habits can build you up, which is why understanding the detail is crucial. You need to know how habits work and how to design them to your liking so that you can avoid the dangerous half of the plate. Your habits can compound for you or against you. Reading from the table in the book. Positive compounding. Productivity compounds. Accomplishing one extra task is a small feat for any given day, but it counts for a lot over an entire year. The effect of automating an old task or mastering a new skill can even be greater. The more tasks you can handle without thinking, the more your brain is free to focus on other areas. Knowledge compounds. Learning one new idea won't make you a genius but a commitment to lifelong learning can be transformative. Furthermore, each book you read not only teaches you something new, but also opens up different ways of thinking about old ideas. As Warren Buffett says, that's how knowledge works. It builds up like compound interest. Relationship compound. People reflect your behavior back to you. The more you help others, the more others want to help you. Being a little bit nicer in each interaction can result in a network of broad and strong connections over time. Negative compounding Stress compounds The frustration of a traffic jam, the weight of parenting responsibilities, the worry of making ends meet, the strain of slightly high blood pressure, by themselves these common causes of stress are manageable. But when they persist for years, little stress is compounded to serious health issues. Negative thoughts compound. The more you think of yourself as worthless, stupid, or ugly, 
which Roshan, by the way, you are, the more you condition yourself to interpret life that way, you get trapped in a thought loop. The same is true for how you think about others. Once you fall into the habit of seeing people as angry, unjust or selfish, you see those kind of people everywhere. Outrage compounds, riots, protests and mass movements are rarely the result of a single event. Instead, a long series of mis microaggression and daily aggravation slowly multiplying until one even tips in the scale and outrage spreads like wildfire. What progress is really like? Imagine that you have an ice cube sitting on the table in front of you. The room is cold and you can see your breath. It is currently 25 degrees. Ever so slowly, the room begins to heat up. 26 degrees. 27. 28. The ice cube is still sitting on the table in front of you. 29 degrees. 30. 31. Still, nothing has happened. Then, 32 degrees. The ice begins to melt. A one degree shift seems seemingly no different from the temperature increases before it has unlocked a huge change. Breakthrough movements are often the results of many previous actions which built up the potential required to unleash a major change. This pattern shows up everywhere. Cancer spends 80% of its life undetectable then takes over the body in months. Bamboo can barely be seen for the first 5 years as it builds extensive root system underground before exploding 90 feet into the air within 6 weeks. Similarly, habits often appear to make no differences until you cross a critical threshold and unlock a new level of performance. In the early and middle stages of any quest, there is often a valley of disappointment. You need, you expect to make progress in a linear fashion and it's frustrating how ineffective changes can seem during the first days, weeks and even months. It doesn't feel like you're going anywhere. It's a hallmark of any compounding process. The most powerful outcomes are delayed. This is one of the core reasons why it is so hard to build habits that last. People make a few small changes, fail to see a tangible result and decide to stop. You think I've been running every day for a month, so why can't I see any change in my body? Once this kind of thinking takes over, it is easy to let good habits fall by the sideways. But in order to make a meaningful difference, habit needs to persist long enough to break through this plateau, what I call the plateau of latent potential. If you find yourself struggling to build a good habit or break a bad one, it's not because you have lost the ability to improve. It is often because you have not yet crossed the plateau of latent potential. Complaining about not achieving success despite working hard is like complaining about an ice cube not melting when you heated it from 25 to 31 degrees. Your work was not wasted. It has just been stored. All the action happens at 32 degrees. When you finally break through the plateau of flattened potential, people will call it an overnight success. The outside world only sees the most dramatic event rather than all that precedes it. But you know that it's the work you did long ago when it seemed that you weren't making any progress that makes the jump today possible.
it is human equivalent of geological pressure two tectonic plates can grind against one another for millions of years the tension slowly building all the while then one day they rub each other once again in the same fashion they are for ages but this time the tension is too great an earthquake erupts changes can take years before it happens all at once mastery requires patience the san antonio spurs one of the most successful teams in nba history they have a quote from a social reformer jacob rice hanging in their locker room when nothing seems to help i go and look at a stone cutter hammering hammering away at his rocks perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it yet at the hundred and first blow it will split into two and i know it was not that last blow that did it but it all has gone before that the plateau of latent potential all big things come from small beginnings the seed of every habit is a single tiny decision but as the decision is repeated a habit sprouts and grows stronger roots entrench themselves and branches grow the task of breaking a bad habit is like uprooting a powerful oak within us and the task of building a good habit is like cultivating a delicate flower one day at a time but what determines whether we stick with a habit long enough to survive the plateau of latent potential and break through to the other side what is it that causes people to slide into unwanted habits and enable others to enjoy the compounding effects of good ones forget about goals focus on system instead prevailing wisdom claims that the best way to achieve what we want in life getting into better shape building a successful business relaxing more and worrying less spending more time with friends and family is to set specific actionable goals for many years this was how i practiced my habits too each one was a goal to be reached i set goals for the grades i wanted to get in for the weights i wanted to lift in the gym for the profits i want to earn in the business i succeeded at a few but i failed a lot of them eventually i began to realize that my results had very little to do with the goals i set and nearly everything to do with the systems i followed what's the difference between systems and goals it's the distinction i first learned from scott adams the cartoon is behind the dilbert comic goals are about the results you want to achieve systems are about the process that led to these results if you are a coach your goal might be to win championship your system is the way you recruit players manage your assistants coaches and conduct practice if you are an entrepreneur your goal might be to build a million dollar business your system is how you test product ideas hire employees and run marketing campaigns If you're a musician your goal might be to play a new piece your system is how often you practice how you break down and tackle difficult measures and your method for receiving feedback from your instructor now for the interesting question if you completely ignored your goals and focus only on your system would you still succeed for example if you were a basketball coach and you ignored your goal to win a championship and focus only on what your team does at practice each day would you still get results i think you would the goal in any sport is to finish with the best score but it would be ridiculous to spend the whole game staring at the scoreboard 
The only way to actually win is to get better each day. In the world of three-time Super Bowl winner Bill Walsh, the score takes care of itself. The same is true for other areas of life. If you want better results, then forget about setting goals. Focus on your system instead. What do I mean by this? Are goals completely useless? Of course not. Goals are good for setting a direction, but systems are best for making progress. A handful of problem arises when you spend too much time thinking about your goals and not enough time designing your system. Problem 1. Winners and losers have the same goal. Goal setting suffers from a serious case of survivorship bias. We concentrate on the people who end up winning, the survivors, and mistakenly assume the ambitious goal led to their success while overlooking all of the people who had the same objective but didn't succeed. Every Olympian wants to win a gold medal. Every candidate wants to get the job. And if successful and un- unsuccessful people share the same goals, then the goals cannot be what differentiates the winners from losers. It wasn't the goal of winning the Tour de France that propelled the British cyclist to the top of the sport. Presumably, they had wanted to win the race every year before, just like every other professional team. The goal had always been there. It was only when they implemented a system of continuous small improvements that they achieved a different outcome. Problem 2. Achieving a goal is only a momentary change. Imagine you have a messy room and you set a goal to clean it. If you summon the energy to tidy up, then you will have a clean room for now. But if you maintain the same sloppy pack rat habits that led to a messy room in the first place, soon you will be looking at a new pile of clutter and hoping for another burst of motivation. You're left chasing the same outcome because you never change the system behind it. You treat a symptom without addressing the cause. Achieving a goal only changes your life for the moment. That's a counterintuitive thing about improvement. We think we need to change our results, but the results are not the problem. What we really need to change are the system that cause those results. When you solve problems at the results level, you only solve them temporarily. In order to fix or improve for good, you need to solve problems at the system level. Fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Problem 3. Goals restrict your happiness. The implicit assumption behind any goal is this. Once I reach my goal, then I'll be happy. The problem with a goal's first mentality is that you're continually putting happiness off until the next milestone. I've slipped into this trap so many times that I've lost count. For years, happiness was always something of my future self to enjoy. I promised myself that once I gained 20 pounds of muscle or after my business was featured in the New York Times, then I could finally relax. Furthermore, goals created on either or conflict. Either you achieve your goal and are successful or you fail and you are a disappointment. You mentally box yourself into a narrow version of happiness. This is misguided. It is unlikely that your actual path through life will match the exact journey you had in mind when you set out. It makes no sense to restrict your satisfaction to one scenario when there are many paths to success. A system first mentality provides the antidote. When you fall in love with the process rather than the product, you don't have to wait to give yourself permission to be happy. You can be satisfied any time your system is running. 
and the system can be successful in many different forms, not just the one you first envision. Problem 4. Goals are at odds with long-term progress. Finally, a goal-oriented mindset can create a yo-yo effect. Many runners work hard for months, but as soon as they cross the finish line, they stop training. The race is no longer there to motivate them. When all of your hard work is focused on a particular goal, what is left to push you forward after you achieve it? This is why many people find themselves reverting to their old habits after accomplishing a goal. The purpose of setting goal is to win the game. The purpose of building system is to continue playing the game. True long-term thinking is goalless thinking. It's not about any single accomplishment. It's about the cycle of endless refinement and continuous improvement. Ultimately, it is your commitment to the process that will determine your progress. A system of atomic habits. If you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you. The problem is your system. Bad habits repeat themselves again and again, not because you don't want to change, but because you have the wrong system for a change. You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your system. Focusing on the overall system rather than a single goal is one of the core themes of this book. It is also one of the deeper meanings behind the word atomic. By now, you probably realize that an atomic habit refers to a tiny change, a marginal gain, a 1% improvement. But atomic habits are not just old habits, however small. They are little habits that are part of a larger system. Just as atoms are the building blocks of a molecule, atomic habits are the building blocks of a remarkable result. Habits are like the atoms of our lives. Each one is a fundamental unit that contributes to your overall improvement. At first, this tiny routine seems insignificant, but soon they build on each other and fuel bigger wins that multiply to a degree that far outweigh the cost of the initial investment. They are both small and mighty. This is, the, this is the meaning of the phrase atomic habits, a regular practice or routine that is not only small and easy to do, but also the source of incredible power, a component of the system of compound growth. Chapter Summary Habits are compound interest of self-improvement. Getting 1% better every day counts for a lot in the long run. Habits are a double-edged sword. They can work for you or against you, which is why understanding the details is essential. Small changes often appear to make no difference until you cross a critical threshold. The more powerful outcome of any compounding process or delay, you need to be patient. An atomic habit is a little habit that is part of a larger system. Just as atoms are building blocks of molecules, atomic habits are the building blocks of remarkable results. If you want better results, then forget about setting goals. Focus on your system instead. You do not raise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your system.